0: Right now, this morning, uh, we're studying the London Confession of Faith, Chapter 9, what a title of free will. And this is found in the hymn book, the Blue Trinity Hymnal, the Baptist edition, on page 675 and 676, in the back of the hymnal, 675 and 676. With this chapter... Our forefathers begin their exposition of the application of salvation in the Christian life. They talk about the promise of salvation in chapter 7, the accomplishment of salvation in the person and work of Christ. And now, from 9 to 18, they expound in detail the application of salvation in the Christian life. And they set the foundation here in chapter 9. And they talk about the framework of the Christian life. They put it in perspective. The Christian life put in perspective comes within the idea of man and his moral states or spiritual states. And what is it about man that is essential to and the ground of the transition of man from the state of innocence to the state of sin to the state of grace to the state of glory? And it is this characteristic of the will or faculty of choice with which God has endowed man. So they are putting the Christian life into perspective. The Christian life involves a transition of a sinner from the state of sin out of the state of sin to a Christian in the state of grace. So in order to talk about that, they first speak put it in perspective, and lay the foundation. That's how I understand the place of chapter 9 in the confession. Then they open up the blessings of the Christian life, associated with the state of grace in chapters 10 to 13, and then the graces of the Christian life, that Christians exercise faith and repentance and good works, perseverance and assurance in 14 15, 16, 17, and 18. So, now this morning, then, free will. How do they address, how do they present free will? Well, in paragraph one, they present to us the general concept or idea of free will. And then they take that general concept or idea and flush it out in the moral states of man. So, Paragraph two is free will in the state of innocence. Paragraph three, free will in the state of sin. Paragraph four, free will in the state of grace. And paragraph five, free will in the state of glory. And they talk about some of the the, the the characteristic, fundamental idea of free will, the concept, and then how Free will operates some of its salient features in the state of innocence, in the state of sin, in the state of grace, and in the state of glory. So that's where we're going this morning. i to try to open up the confession as it sets forth the concept and the practical display of free will. First of all, then, paragraph one the general idea or concept of free will. It reads, God has endued the will of man with that natural liberty and power of acting upon choice. That, it is neither forced nor by any necessity of nature, determined to do good or evil. So, if you want to break that down into what it actually says, it has the the, the will of man has natural liberty and ability or power to act on choice, and it is defined this way: two things. It is neither forced to do good or evil, nor is it determined by any necessity of nature to do good or evil. Not forced from without, not by necessity of nature determined to do good or evil. So they define the ability or capacity of the human will, the human soul, the will, human chooser, to act upon choice in moral matters with regard to these two things. It's not forced from without to do evil or to do good. And it's not by necessity of nature determined to do good or evil. So what are they talking about? First of all, the first essential aspect is that the will of man is not forced. It is not compelled to do evil. It's a choice. Not compelled. It's a choice. The devil didn't force Adam or Eve to sin. They chose to sin. People in the state of sin choose to sin. It's not like one comedian in the 70s used to say, the devil made me do it. No, the devil didn't make you do it. People do it because they want to do it. They choose to do it. The will is not forced from without. And there are many martyrs that are the living proof of it. They don't renounce Jesus in spite of the fact that people try to force them to. They threaten them to. They torture them to. And they don't renounce Jesus. So you, you mean that if people are tortured and they comply to do evil under torture, that they actually chose to be relieved from the pain? Yeah, that's exactly what happens. That's not very pleasant to say it, but that's the truth because there are many people that are now in heaven and in glory that are martyrs that didn't choose to do evil even though they were pressured and tortured to do it. They didn't do it. So the the, the will of man has this liberty and power of acting upon choice that it is not forced from without to do evil a choice to do good or to do evil. But then the second thing is that it says it's not determined to do good or evil. Now, what does this mean? Well, they're talking about the moral fixation or bent or what the old writers called the habitus of the human will. And they're not saying, in, a, in an erroneous sense, that the human will can just be neutral and have no fixation, no moral habitus, no moral determination. They're not saying that. But what they're saying is that it is possible for the habitus or moral determination or moral fixation of a human will to change. And they define then how the habitus of the human will changes. How it changes from what it was in the state of innocence to what it becomes in the state of sin, and how it changes again from what it was in the state of sin to what it is now in the state of grace. And what it is now in the state of grace to what it will become in the state of glory. It is possible. For the habitus of the human will, for the moral fixation or determination of a human will to change. It's not, it, it's not that they're saying that it's possible to be human and have your will not fixed on anything so one day you can choose to act like the state of sin, next day choose to act like the state of grace, next day go back to the state of sin and go all over the place. No, no, that, that that's, I don't mean any of that. And possibly it's worded in such a vague way that it could be misunderstood. I, I get that. Because Let me tell you, the 1689 and the Westminster Confession on which it was based are not, I'm not going to whisper, inspired. They're not inspired of God. They're not infallible. And they're not worded in such a way that it's impossible to misunderstand them. And it's possible that somebody could take this in a sense, but it would be wrong. It's not what they mean, and uh, I know it's not what they mean. How do you know it's not? Because they're not Pelagian heretics, so I know they don't mean that. And uh, and and that 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 I am interpreting it correctly about what determination of the will means, because some people that have tried to put the 1689 in modern English have completely misconstrued this and completely missed the point. If you look at chapter 10, now observe what God does in regeneration. In paragraph 1, it's on page 676. Those whom God has predestined to life, he's pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call. So talking about conversion and regeneration by his word and spirit, the gospel call. It calls by his word, the general call of the gospel, by his spirit, the effectual call of the gospel, out of the state of sin and death in which they are by nature to the state of salvation by Jesus Christ. They go out of the state of sin and into the state of grace. And what does God do to the whole soul to bring a sinner out of the state of sin and into the state of grace when he regenerates or effectually calls them? Listen to this. What does he do to their mind? Enlightening their mind spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. What does he do to their heart? Taking away their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh. What does he do to their will? listen to this, renewing their wills and by his almighty power determining them, determining them, characteristically fixing them to that which is good. So when they're talking about the will is not determined by any necessity of nature, In the state of sin, the will was characteristically fixed on evil. In the state of grace, it is characteristically fixed or determined to good. How did it go from being determined to evil to being determined to good? God changed it in regeneration By determining the will to that which is good. So that's what they mean by the determination or determining or determined of the will. They're talking about its characteristic moral fixation. And that's very clear from chapter 10 and the way they use it in regeneration. when They say that God changes the determination of the will by determining the will to good. That's true of everybody in the state of grace. Their will is determined to good. And that happens by the uh, mighty, powerful work of regeneration in the heart, where it changes the mind, the heart, the will, morally. Am I being clear? You understand what I'm saying? So these gentlemen are not saying that it's possible for to be human and have your will not determined to anything. That's not what they said. They said it's not by any absolute, they said, well, the Westminster had absolute. They just changed it to necessity. It's not by any necessity of nature determined, which means it's possible to be human with human nature and have your will determined to evil. And it's equally possible to be human and have your will determined to be good. It's not possible to be human and have your will not determined to anything. That's not what they said. But they said no absolute necessity of nature requires that there can be only one habitus of a human will. That's their point. That there are some people whose human will are human and have human nature, and their will is to Who are they? Those are there are some people who are human and have human nature but their wills are determined to good. Who are they? Those in the States, the Greats, and the There were two people whose wills were determined to good mutably. Right? Oh. So, that's my explanation of paragraph one. You got any questions or comments on that? Okay, let's move on. <laughs> Do you like that? Pretty, pretty clever, huh? Yes, Adam, you first before Paul gets it, gets it, gets it out. It, 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 well, therefore it includes Adam and Eve. Right. It's a description of them and everybody else. No, it's not specific to anybody. It, it, it it's a big picture statement of the general concept. And it's not a Pelagian idea that you can be human and not have your will determined to anything. That's Pelagian, that's not what that means. Pelagian, you know, based on Pelagius error. That's not what they're not teaching Pelagianism. Okay, Paul, I'm gonna let you go. But I'm not I'm not but you're on a short leash. Because i got to get this finished. Great. I, I think that's probably prudent. Alright, so. You, you, you're clear then, right? You're clear what they're talking about. They're not teaching plagianism. They're rather saying, yes, everybody's will is fixed on something. But you can be human, And have that fixation change. Right. Now, let's look at how that pertains to the state of innocence. Man, in his state of innocency, had freedom and power to will and do that which was good and well-pleasing to God, but yet was unstable so that he might fall from it. Westminster says something slightly different, or very close. Man in his state of innocency had freedom and power to will and do that which was good and well-pleasing to God, but yet mutably so that he might fall from it. That's basically the same idea. Why they... Felt they needed to change it from yet was unstable to mutably. I, really, you know, I don't know. They did. They changed it. So this is about man's original integrity in the state of innocency. His will was determined to good, but it was not determined or fixed to good immutably. But it was determined to good in such a way that it was capable of changing. And he had the power to choose good, or he had the power to choose evil. It's not that his will wasn't set on anything, and he had to decide what fixation it would be. Yet it was unproven and mutable; it was capable of changing. Now there is here a tremendous mystery, on that. and I love the fact that the old writers simply appeal: How, how, how do you know that it changed? change? But could you have predicted that it's mutable? Absolutely. Can you explain a psycho how it could possibly change? You cannot. In, in fact, the old writers, and, and, and even Professor Mary uses the word, talk about this one of the insoluble problems, incomprehensible mysteries associated with the fallen to sin, the psychogenetic problem. How could a perfect man sin? Psychologically, it's impossible. Because his heart has to change before his will changes, and his will has to change before his heart changes. So it can't happen, but it did. And you can't explain how it happened, but it did. Well, how do you know it could happen? Because it happened. So yeah, there's a lot of mystery associated with the state of innocence. And nevertheless, he had a perfect and yet unproven and mutable integrity. His will was fixed and determined to good, but mutably. Now, that brings us to free will in the state of sin. Free will in the state of sin. Man, by his fall into a state of sin, has wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So in the state of sin, his will is fixed and determined to sin. It's fixed and determined to do what is evil. That's the characteristic bent, fixation, determination or moral habitus of his will. And he has no moral or spiritual ability to change it back to good. Can't do it. So Adam in the state of innocency had the power to change from being good to being evil. But sinners don't have the power what Mary calls the power of contrary choice, they don't have the power either to put themselves by their own power and choice back into a state of innocency or into a state of grace. They have lost all ability of will, wholly, completely, and totally lost all ability of will to any spiritual good that accompanies salvation. So as, here's the fruit, The natural man, that is a sinner in the state of sin, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength either to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. So a sinner doesn't have the moral power or ability to change his heart, to change his will to reset, to redetermine his will from its moral fixation on evil to becoming morally fixed on good. But as we saw, we just read from paragraph 10, or chapter 10, paragraph 1, God does have that power. And that's what God does in regeneration. In regeneration, God changes, redetermines, refixes characteristically the moral habitus of the will of a sinner and changes it to the will of a saint, which is set on good in the state of grace. They appeal to Romans 8:7, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. And those that are in the flesh that is in a state of sin cannot Please God. Um, They also uh, appeal to Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And John chapter 6: No man, uh, 44 and 65, no man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. And then 65, and he said, Therefore said I to you that no man can come to me except the Father which sent me draw him. And they appeal to First Corinthians 2.14. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Neither can he know them. He can't know them. He can't come to Christ. He can't. He has no moral ability because, in the state of sin, his will is fixed and determined to evil, and he cannot, in his own moral strength or power, change it. He has no power either to prepare himself for conversion or convert himself. That's what they're saying. That's the fixation or habitus of the will. In the state of sin, it is fixed and determined to evil, and the sinner in his own strength cannot change it back. So in the state of innocency, it was set on good, and through his sin, Adam changed it. In the state of sin, it's set on evil, and sinners are totally unable to save themselves or fix the problem. Does that make sense? Now, this is what they're saying. So, the doctrine of total inability of those in the state of sin indicates that the habitus of the will of a sinner is set on evil, and the sinner in his own moral strength can't change it. Now, the state of grace. When God converts a sinner and translates him into the state of grace. Okay, When they talk about that again, in re, when they talk about regeneration or effectual calling, in chapter 10, remember? And they said, that, what does he do to the will? He determines the will to that which is good. What is, now, there, here it is. When God converts a sinner and translates him into the state of grace, he frees him from his natural bondage under sin. And by his grace, alone, enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. And we saw also the way they expressed that in 10.1. He enables them to do what's spiritually good, and that's because by his almighty power, he renews the will and determines the will to that which is good, and effectually draws them to Jesus Christ. Again, they allude back to John 6. He draws them to Christ, he determines their wills to that which is good, and enables them to do that which is spiritually good and well-pleasing to God. So those that are in the flesh in the state of sin cannot please God, but those that are in the state of grace can and do please God. In the state of sin, the human will is fixed and determined to do evil. In the state of grace, the human will is fixed and determined to do good, not evil. God, by the power of the Holy Spirit in regeneration and spiritual resurrection redetermines, refixes the will from evil to good. And that's why he enables us to do that which is good and well-pleasing to God freely by choice. They appeal to Philippians 2.13 For it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. And they appeal to John eight thirty four and 36. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And he's talking about being slave of sin. But then they add this. Even though the habitus, the moral fixation of the will, is radically changed in regeneration and conversion so that it's very different than what it was in the state of sin. The state of sin was set on evil, and the state of grace it's set on good. God changed that. Nevertheless, there's a little more to this story. And by his grace alone enables them freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good yet qualification, yet, nevertheless, yet. So, as that, by reason of his remaining corruptions, the Christian, the believer in the state of grace, he does not perfectly or only will that which is good. He doesn't will what is good perfectly, And he doesn't will what is good exclusively. Does not perfectly or only will that which is good, but does also will that which is evil. And you know what text they're going to appeal to. Galatians 5.17. The flesh lusts against the spirits. These are contrary one to the other so that you cannot do the things which you would. You cannot, in a state of grace, achieve moral perfection in this life. You want to, but you can't. It's impossible. Your will is fixed on good, but it's, it's not so fixed on good that you only choose good. Or that you always choose good. Or that when you choose good, you choose it perfectly. Without any taint of remaining corruption. And again, they appeal to Romans seven fifteen. 18, 19, 21, 23. And this is what that says. For that which I do not allow, I do. For what I would, that I don't do. What I hate, sin, that I do. Verse 18. For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. For to will, is present with me. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. Verse 19. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Verse 21. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. Verse 23. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, bringing me unto... Captivity to the law of sin in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am. So on. So we have remaining corruption. So in the state of grace, can we please God? Yes. Is God pleased with something less than perfect? Yes, praise God, He is. Because we're not talking about justification. The ground of justification is the perfect righteousness of Christ. And with respect to getting right with God, nothing pleases him except absolute sinless perfection, the righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Jesus. But we're not talking about justification. We're talking about God as a father with his spiritual children. And he's pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere. I'm quoting from the confession regarding good works. He's pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, even though accompanied with many imperfections. So he sets the will on good, but it's not so set on good that we do good exclusively or perfectly in the state of grace. Say, well, you know, there's a lot of mystery associated with this stuff. Really? No kidding. Not really, you think? Mystery associated with the state of innocence? Mystery associated with the state of sin? Mystery associated with the state of grace, of tension? Ah, but when we get to the state of glory, all the mystery's gone, right? But Okay, let me read it and then you tell me. Okay, free will in the state of glory. This will of man is made perfectly and immutably free to good alone in the state of glory. Now they appealed to a text that may be speaking about Christian maturity, but the Westminster Divines appealed to three other passages as well. So let's look at the ones that Westminster appealed to. Um, they appealed to Hebrews 12.23, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, completely freed from every vestige of sin. And 1 John 3, 2, we will see him as he is and we will be like him. We will be morally perfect and impeccable, incapable of ever sinning again. And Jude 24, now him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. When we are presented before him, it will be faultless and sinless. The spirits have just been perfected. So when our spirit, our soul, leaves our body at death and we join those spirits, that soul, by the power of God, is completely freed from sin, and the will is fixed and determined to good perfectly and immutably. Unlike the state of innocence, which was perfectly fixed but not immutably fixed. Unlike the state of grace, which is immutably fixed, you can't go back in the state of sin but not perfectly fixed. So in the state of glory, it'll be better than the state of innocence and better than the state of grace. The will will be fixed and determined to a good immutably and perfectly forever. In the state of grace, immutably, you can't go back to evil ever again. That's not possible. is Not that wonderful, but not perfectly. State of innocence, perfectly, but not immutably. State of glory, perfectly and immutably fixed to good. Well, wait a minute. How can I be in such a state if I'm free that I can't choose to do evil? I told you, you're not going to be free from mystery ever. I don't know, I can't explain that, but thank God for it better than the state of innocence, better than the state of grace. And that's what we're headed for in the state of glory. So the will of man. It chooses, man chooses to do good or to do evil. And the moral fixation of that will is capable of change. In the state of innocence, it was perfectly fixed but not immutably fixed on good. In the state of sin, it's set on sin and evil in such a way that sinners themselves don't have the power to change it. But thank God, it can be changed because in the state of grace, God changes it and sets it on good, immutably, so you can't go back into a state of sin, but not perfectly, So you still have remaining corruption in the state of glory. Either when our soul leaves our body at death or when Jesus returns, it's set on good forever, perfectly, and in you.